Hello and welcome to Bright Wings, children's books to make the heart soar. I am your host, Charity Hill. The purpose of this conversation is to help mothers and fathers identify books that will liberate their children to embrace truth, goodness, and beauty. Catherine, it is my pleasure to welcome you here to Bright Wings Children's Books. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Catherine Nolte was raised in a small town in Ohio and attended the Iowa Writers Workshop, where she was a Truman Capote Fellow. She lives with her husband and four children in Iowa. Back to the Bright Before is her first novel. Catherine, we have well-read mom in common. You belong to uh, a reading group of women in your town. And that's how we were originally put in touch with one another. And so um, Catherine values uh, reading reflectively, reading in a community. When her book was handed to me, I was just so excited to meet another woman who has four children like me, who cares so much about uh, reading in community and living reflectively, and has also somehow managed to write a book. So not only do you read more, read well, but you write well too. And I was surprised and challenged by your new book, Back to the Bright Before. I thought it would be enjoyable for Bright Wings listeners to hear more from an author who's so like themselves. And I think this is a book that many of our children would find gripping. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> when I wrote the book, when I finished it, my the first people who got to experience the book were my own children. I read it aloud to them and they were so excited. They were, it was such a gratifying experience to, you know, it's one thing to put words on a page, but it's another than to see how somebody else is going to relate to them. And as, as we read this book out loud, we would do it after dinner. And my intention was to read a chapter a night in the evening. And they got so into the story. It was always, oh, just one more chapter, mom, one more chapter, mom, which of course just filled my heart with joy because that is, that's the best feeling when I'm reading another writer's work to them. I love it when we all experience it together, when we all get so excited. But then to have that same feedback on something I myself had written, it was, it was honestly just this joyous occasion. I was so happy to share it with them. And we've been waiting now to be able to share it with the whole world. <laughs> That's wonderful. I I think it's really important to disclose that you are also a homeschooling mom. So many families, because of COVID, who hadn't considered it before are homeschooling now. And so this whole new world of being together and educating together is opening up for lots of families. I know that when I was homeschooling, I had like uh, an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and twin three-year-olds. And there was absolutely nothing further I could do. I might have had desires and ideas and thoughts, but however do you homeschool and write a book <laughs> at the same time? That is a good question. <laughs> um, probably the biggest thing is I have a really supportive husband ah. who has completely believed in me and my writing and has always been willing to prioritize that. And so he, after dinner, he'll do the dishes. He's the one who is in charge of the bedtime routine. Let's find all the pajamas, make sure the teeth get brushed. And so he, he sort of gives me that space to be able to write. So do you write after dinner then during that 
a few hours in the evening? Yes. Well, partly. So how we do it is when I was writing back to the right before, I wrote it by hand in a notebook. That way I could just... When, wow. Whenever I had time, I could find the time and not be distracted because I don't know if you're like me. When I log on to the computer, even just to do some work, I end up checking email. I read the news. Yeah. Yes. There's this multiplication of tasks once you open your computer that can really shatter your concentration and your focus and your consciousness in a million directions. Right. And so say I have a half hour to write, I, I could waste 20 minutes just messing around, right? And so I get, I get rid of that distraction. So I have a notebook. And so I would write, I get up early at 5.30. So I would write for a little bit in the morning. We do school until lunchtime. And then we do um, a quiet time in the afternoon where kids go to their own spaces where they can read, they can draw, they can play. If they, my, my older ones have some math or something they need to finish up. And so then I used that afternoon time as well to write. And then, um, and like I said, in the evening, then I, I still feel, even though I'm with my children all day long, I feel like I can't just disappear all night long. <laughs> and so I, you know, I try to do like say another hour in the evening, but my husband um, helping to take care of the children, just also just mentally frees me to write because I, there are stretches where my husband is not home, you know, where his work is demanding. And I can feel the, the weight of that where he does not come home. And it's just me for dinner and clean up in bed. And so if I had, if I didn't have that support, I don't honestly think I could have done it. Yeah. So part of part of his contribution is to help you feel like you're not alone and that there's space for you to actualize these other dimensions of who you are. Right. And to just just be right. Yes. I love hearing some of the what goes into making the sausage. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for sharing sharing that. And and let's talk about some of the meat. So let me sketch the basic plot outline for our listeners of your story back to the bright before. Back to the bright before. Catherine, it's going to be published on May 30th. Is that right? That is correct. So just, yes, coming right up here. Right up here. Amazing. So, okay. So in this mystical adventure story, we meet Perpetua, and she's known as Pet. We meet her brother, Simon, whose family used to be bright and sweet. Pet and her mama would spend hours gardening, and her daddy would make wood sculptures. He's a chainsaw sculptor. And much of their income was from their dad being a chainsaw sculptor and going to fairs and doing demonstrations and selling his sculptures. But then Perpetua's daddy falls from a ladder and the family's fortunes and happiness fall as well. Two surgeries have not improved her daddy's injuries and he won't or he can't leave his room. Pet's mother is working so hard as a waitress all the time, but still the family has I mean, you get the impression that they have barely enough to eat. Pet is quite naturally a sunny, cheerful, and adaptable girl. And yet, she's sort of darkened by this secret that she's not told anyone. 
And the secret is that she thinks it's her fault that her dad fell from the ladder. She takes pains to to have us trust her as a narrator, which I really like that she says she's always truthful about everything except for this one thing she's never told anyone. And then she tells the reader um, that, that she thinks it's her fault her daddy fell because she was using a new camera that she'd received on her birthday. And she asked him to turn at the top of the ladder so she could take his picture. And that's what caused him to fall. Um, and then she, there's this aspect she's told a couple of other people. So she says that at the, as he fell, it's like he fell in slow motion. Is that right, Catherine? Am I describing that? Yes, that's correctly. And her mom thinks it's nonsense. Her mama doesn't believe her, but her friend, down the road, Sister Melanie thinks it's totally possible that he floated there for a second, and that's why he didn't die. <laughs> um, and so Sister Melanie is kind and wise for being so young, and, and Sister Melanie is certain that everything is going to work out for Pet's family. But Pet is not so sure. And so when she hears a neighbor recites a poem that's a clue for a long-lost treasure, Pet decides to take her brother, Simon, off on a stolen pony and go unearth the treasure, which will help to right the wrongs that she's caused. So for such a sweet story, there are plenty of unhappy and troubled people. And I find this fascinating because it, it truly is bright and sunny elements of your story, Catherine. And there are these other elements that are um, genuinely dark. And and the fantasy elements are fascinating. I, I wonder, are there miracles in the story? Is there magic in the story? And I don't want you to answer that. I just want the reader, I want the reader to decide <laughs> what they think. And maybe that's your intention as well. I don't know. <laughs> yes, that, that that is my intention, right? And I, I think um, different types of readers will have different interpretations of what happens at the Abbey. It's definitely otherworldly. Yeah. And so um, I think people will bring their own backgrounds to the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of your characters, Catherine. Can I call them your characters? Do you feel like they're yours? <laughs> the characters? I do feel like they're mine, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call them your. I like the possessive pronoun there rather than the <laughs> than the article adjective. The your characters, Carolyn. So especially I was struck by Perpetua's mom, who I think is so well drawn. Can you describe Perpetua's mom for us? Sure. So Perpetua's mother, she is going through a really hard time right now. Her husband has been injured. He can no longer work. And he's basically given up hope that he could ever be healed. He's had multiple surgeries. They failed. Um, Perpetua's mother wants him to try again, and he refuses. He, th- he thinks it's a waste of money. They don't have any money. And he's basically given up hope. And so Perpetua's mother has been forced, because her husband isn't working and is basically despondent in a room on his own, she is shouldering everything. She's raising the children on her own. She's having to work extra shifts as a waitress at the restaurant. And she, she, before the accident, 
she had had this beautiful garden that she and Perpetua would tend together. She, she didn't plant a garden this year. You know, she, she, she tells Pet, I don't think spring is ever going to come again. She, she too is completely without hope. She can see no way out of her present situation. I like her so much as a character because I felt that way too. She's so believable because if you've been a mom for very long at all, you know, you enter a situation where um, perhaps none of us have been in a situation as dark as Perpetua's moms, but perhaps some of us have actually been in darker situations. Perhaps, perhaps we've had a child with cancer um, or any number of things. Definitely. Perpetua has these things that she says about her mom that sound just like something a kid would say or observe. Only if you have, um, if you've lived through anything difficult or if you're the mother reading the story aloud, you see so much more about what Perpetua's observation about her mom means. And, and you can see that this woman is hanging by a thread. Um, she's, she's very angry. Like her life has not worked out the way she thought it was going to. And there's like this, this resentment or anger at the way things are right now. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think for her mother too, whenever Perpetua tries to say something helpful or hopeful, her mother doesn't want to hear it. It, I think it, it hurts her mother yeah. to hope. Sometimes I think I've experienced this where you could want, you can want something so badly and it doesn't happen and it, at least for me, it's, it starts to hurt to keep hoping that the thing might happen, right? I, I just kind of want to pull away and, and give up. And that's where Perpetua's mother is in the story. She's, it, it hurts too much. She can see no way forward. So she's so well done, Catherine. Thank you for giving us such a great mom character. Like she obviously loves her family and yet she's really, really s struggling. So I, I love that you gave us all that dimension with her mom. It's quite interesting to me. Who is your publisher? Random House. Random House is published back to the bright before. Random House um, is, is a very mainstream publisher. And I think a lot of us can understand a situation where, um, you know, we're living in a, maybe we would acknowledge that we live in a somewhat post-Christian era nowadays. and. It's, it's not like we live in the Middle Ages where faith is everywhere all the time and monasteries are commonly popping up down. We all live down the road from a monastery <laughs> or anything, right? But in this book, Perpetua does live down the road from a monastery, from the Monastery of Our Lady of Perpetual Help or something. Is that is that it? Because she notices her name on the sign. Yes, Perpetua, Perpetual. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and she's so this child is influenced and involved with a monastery of nuns that lives down the road from her in a in a rural area. Why did you do this? My family and I visited a monastery here in Iowa that is set just as it's described in Back to the Bright Before. So it's it's this hundreds of acres of valleys and, and forest. And we went there all together and 
to visit. And the, the, the nuns at this monastery, they also make candy for a living to support themselves. And when we went, we were so welcomed by the sisters. They just, even though on the one hand, it felt like we were sort of invading their personal space, they, they didn't make me feel that way. They were so welcoming to us. They had a flock of chickens. They, one of the sisters, a younger sister, showed my children how she fed them. The mother superior came out and asked my nine-year-old son if he would like to drive her around on the golf court throughout the abbey. Awesome. <laughs> I know. I was, I was so awesome when she said that. I said, now, you know, he's never driven a golf cart before. And she said, oh, that's fine. We've all just received our evening blessings. So let's go for it. <laughs> so I was a nervous wreck watching him drive her. <laughs> but uh, he did not wreck. They were fine. Everything was fine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this Abbey, it's, it stuck with me when we went home. It's, it's so different. The women there, they live lives completely opposite from my own life. I, I couldn't stop thinking about them and, you know, their life of prayer and work. And I also couldn't stop thinking about this abbey was surrounded by, by homes. There were, there were farmhouses, you know, on either side of it. And I thought, what would that be like to, to grow up there, to live beside this abbey? Even if you weren't a person of faith at all, you would know it was there and you would know what it represented. What would that be like to have those sisters right next door? And so when I decided to write the book and I knew I was going to send uh, the brother and the sister, Perpetua and Simon, on a journey, and I was trying to think, well, where should they go? Immediately that abbey came to mind. What a perfect place to go on a journey. And the sisters came to mind because how joyful they had been in welcoming us. I thought, oh, if, if these children who live next door were in trouble, those sisters would help them. I, I just feel certain that they would. A monastery in the Middle Ages is normal, but a monastery on our in our landscape is extraordinary. So that was the feeling that it gave me, is it contributed to this this element of realistic fantasy, for lack of a better way to describe it. And so it, it added this this element, rather, of believable strangeness, this sort of marvelous element that was very different and yet par like part and parcel of our world, too. Also, something that I appreciated about the sisters is that this, this other aspect of the monastery and the sisters, and especially Sister Melanie's involvement, because we hear from her the most with Pet, uh, what I liked is that sometimes when I read contemporary fiction, I feel a little trapped in the here and now quality of it and that there's no sort of outside perspective to contemporary fiction. There's nobody speaking into perhaps the main character's situation from outside the situation in which she's, well, like Pet is kind of trapped in a situation where everyone around her, all the adults cannot help her. Her parents can't help her because they are both hopeless and um, can't figure out how to change the current circumstances. And yet there's somebody speaking into her circumstances with these words of hope and encouragement. And um, Sister Melanie is teaching her these Latin expressions. And so there's this exotic quality to the, this extraordinary element 
right, to their friendship too. That's fun and interesting and intelligent. And so I just, I loved that there was this way to escape or this other reference point for pet. Yes, yes. And that's how I honestly felt when I visited the Abbey myself. It's, it is like stepping into a different world. Time is different there. Priorities are different there. And so the Abbey does for Perpetua, it's, it's a different, it's a different place. It's so far removed from what she lives on the day to day. And I mean, it does feel for her, I think, otherworldly. And so in that perspective, like you said, it helps her to see outside of her present situation. And Sister Melanie does it in such a gentle way. Um, she's, she's never trying to convert Perpet uh, Perpetua. She's, she's just gently, gently guiding her. She is this beacon of light for Perpetua to turn to when things feel bleak. Let's talk a second about how Sister Melanie and Mama have different perspectives on the world. Do you mind, Catherine? I think it's like on page 25. It seems like Pet understands that Mama sees the world differently than the sisters do. And um, says, Mama's eyes so keen and clear saw the world as it was right now. She saw a messy house, a restaurant full of hungry customers, and a hurt husband in his bed. But the nuns, they saw the world as it could be if you moved all the troublesome stuff out of the way. They saw a home built on love, a room filled with souls, and a man with a thousand ideas just waiting to spring from his hands. Mama didn't hate the sisters. Please don't think that. She just couldn't understand them. And when you can't understand things, it's like you don't see it right. Which is why she said things like, nobody gives you anything for free. Even though the nuns gave us free stuff all the time. Eggs, and honey, and candy. Yes, that's right. And that was such a fun contrast to do between Sister Melanie and Mama. They are these two strong, important women in Perpetua's life. And Perpetua says about her mother, you know, she's, she's mean now, but she knows. Mean now. That's right. She's mean, but she says, I love her anyway. And she does. She loves her mother so much. And she knows why her mother is, is acting mean. Perpetua even says, my mother is the smartest person I know. She is smarter even than my teachers. But there's something that Sister Melanie seems to know that Mama just doesn't understand. And so during the story, Perpetua, she's, she's sort of having to work out, how do I view the world? Is it, is it like my mother, whom I love dearly, and who, who I can see is struggling so much, and who I desperately want to help? Or do I see the world like Sister Melanie sees it, who, who just has this optimism that eventually things will work themselves out, it, it, and it's a quiet optimism. I don't, I don't think that Sister Melanie has, you know, this false, oh, don't worry about anything, it'll be okay. But, but of course, as a nun, she believes that ultimately, at the very end, the story will work itself out, but probably in a different way than Mama does. Catherine, you seem to be okay in Back to the Bright Before with 
telling children that there's outright evil in the world, <laughs> which I appreciate. I do think there's a difference. Um, and I especially want to talk about Gordon, who's the antagonist, right, in the story. Even Gordon's mother, he makes her uncomfortable. And Pet's mother has warned her, even before the troubles in the family, I think, started, to stay away from Gordon. And, and Pet recognizes he's a very different man than my daddy is. That's, that's right. Gordon, from the very beginning, is this dark force in the book. Like you, perhaps, um, I wish that there were not evil, bad things in the world. I wish that I did not have to teach my children that there are evil, bad things in the world. But of course there are. And we read fairy tales. We've read the stories of the saints, who, some of whom they're tortured, murdered. So my children, my children know that there is bad, that there is darkness. And I think I like to approach that idea through story if I can. I think as I, as a girl, I remember watching the news and that would really frighten me. I lived in a rural area, but our news, of course, came from the city, like the nightly. Right. Right, doesn't it? So we were we were, you know, safe here in my little town, but it felt so scary that there would be people being murdered and you know, robbed and kidnapped and so I'm I'm careful with my children not to expose them to too much sensationalized news story because I don't want them to live in fear. But I think they do need to know that there are bad forces and there there will be people who are just, you know, unfortunately bad people. And I think a way to expose them to that idea in a way that doesn't completely frighten them is if you present it in a story and you, you show the evil for what it is. There, there are no, and back to the right before, there are no redeeming qualities about Gordon. We don't get even a little bit of sympathy for this man. Like, oh, well, maybe he had some horrible thing happen to him that can explain why he... His mom seems like a good generous and kind woman, gentle person. You're right. And And it's like Gordon became this way through his own choices. Like as an adult reading the book, I just think. And then, but I also like how you gave us a warm up about Gordon. Um, You, you gave us this prep, like he makes me feel uncomfortable. I feel a little scared around him. Even his mother is uncomfortable around him. My mom has warned me about him. And so you kind of are teaching children to develop their, their radar, their feelers for who does who makes me feel unsafe. That's right. And and I need to be attuned to who may be bad. <laughs> That's right. Yes. In Perpetua, there is no, she is not tricked by Gordon. She knows from the very start, this is a bad person. The only reason in the beginning of the story, she even is in his presence is to visit his kind mother. Right? Right. So she, she almost has to, to see him in order to visit this this neighbor who I think she has a little bit of pity for she can she can sense that the mother is scared of her own son <laughs> yeah and and in Discordon seems to be very deliberate he he's menacing on purpose to the children he's and then he's 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 scary like he's scary in a way that's all too easy to believe he's even he's willing to be violent to the children and and uh, maybe at one point he he accidentally hurt Simon. Not sure if that was if what happens there is intentional or not. He's willing to be violent to the children. He and 
And it's good to have uh, a repre- representations, I think, for our children that help to attune them to these things of awareness and prudence. And yet at the same time, even though the children are not betr- like they're not tricked, they still confront him. And I wonder if we could talk about that. The children, in a certain sense, they're not seeking out Gordon. They're trying to get away from him. But when they're confronted with him, they don't back down. They tangle with him, even though they're super outmanned. That's right. And I do think um, I should make it clear that they don't directly on their own decide, let's go get Gordon. He more, he's pursuing them. Right. They know that um, Perpetua is determined to find the treasure. and. She's warned that Gordon is going to try to find the treasure too, but she decides she is not going to let that bad fact persuade her. She knows if she can find the treasure, good things will happen. And she's not going to then let this, this evil force stop her. I think there is a moment in the story where the children do have to confront Gordon, but it's only out of love for each other, where Gordon is directly threatening them in a situation where then they, they get this sort of inner strength to go after him. But all other times in the story, it's it's him following them and pursuing them. And they do their best, actually, to try to avoid Gordon, right? They know he's this bad force. But Perpetua, though, is determined not to let that that negative energy, if you will, uh, affect her family's potential good fortune. That contentiousness is 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 done, I think, in such a healthy way. And I think it's also good that good because it's true to life. We see how Gordon won't be deterred from what he wants either in a way that's evil and that his actions have consequences. You were just talking about how Perpetua is determined to seek out this coin in order to change her family's fortunes. And what motivates her to leave? And is her journey a spiritual one? Well, she leaves because she thinks she has no other choice. She can recognize the situation that her family's in, And she has decided that she knows how to fix the situation. And once once she has that realization, I don't think there's any way that she would not try to save her family. She loves them so much. And of course, she's a child. What can she do, right? And so there's probably a little bit of uh, naivety there. However, she's determined to do what she can to make the situation right. And I should, you know, make it clear that when when she leaves, she's she's worried about leaving. She knows that her mother and father are going to be worried about her and Simon. So she doesn't take the decision lightly at all. You know, she she makes sure she leaves them a note, and she she feels very responsible for her little brother on the journey. She knows, hey, I've I've taken him, you know, from his parents, and so it is up to me to keep us both safe. And so that is a, a weight that she freely carries on her family's behalf. Whether her journey is spiritual, 
That's a good question. In the one sense, it's purely a physical quest in that there's an object she wants to find because she has complete faith that if she can find this object, her family will return to how it once was. On the other hand, though, as she goes on this journey, she has to confront things that she's never confronted before as a child. Yes, misfortune has befallen her parents and then in an indirect way, her too. But this is the first time is on this journey where bad things happen directly to her and directly to Simon. And so there are points on the journey where she admits, oh, I finally see how daddy feels or how mama feels. I feel like them right now. How like there are no good choices. And no matter what you do, you fail. And she has those moments repeatedly. And each time then, she thinks about Sister Melanie and how Sister Melanie has told her, in life, you have to make a choice. And sometimes things happen to us, of course, we do not choose at all and we would never choose. But how we respond to those tragedies, we do have a choice. And so Perpetua sees, well, I chose at the start of this journey to be brave and strong, but it's not enough just to choose at the start. Bad things are going to happen on the journey, and I have to choose over and over again whether I'm still going to pursue this goodness. And so in that sense, I do think there's a spiritual element. Yes. I love how you put that, Catherine. Yeah, I love I love that it is a physical journey, as you say, but we can't really go places with our bodies that we're not going with our whole selves, right? There's the transformation that happens to to her. She really, I love how you frame that. She experiences some of the same things that her parents are undergoing. And she says, oh, I feel like, because that's a beautiful moment where she's like, I feel like my dad must feel. The story does end happily. Right, so, yes. So <laughs> we do have this this confirmation of hope being stronger than despair and goodness yeah. being stronger than evil. Yes. Thank you so much, Catherine Nolte, for your beautiful book, Back to the Bright Before. And I just, uh, my, my third grade daughter, actually, she's just wrapping up third grade today. <laughs> She loves this. She's really enjoying this book. I had to steal it out of her school bag in order to get ready to talk to you today. Oh, I love to hear that. That is wonderful. (laughs) So it's in stores. Yes. May 30th. Yes. Beautiful. Great. Catherine, thank you again. Thanks for joining me here on Bright Wings. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun talking to you.